Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. There is a surprising amount of writing required to be a successful developer. Whether you have to write technical specifications, document an existing system, or even write tutorials for open source software, your technical writing skills will not only determine the quality of your work, but may even be the deciding factor in the success of your entire team. In this episode, we're going to discuss some things that you should be doing to improve the quality of your technical writing. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Uh, writing. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, you and I were talking before the call, and it took me about an hour and a half to write this show outline, which normally it's like four hours. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, you know, gradually declining. But I have been in such a writing mode that this was nothing. I mean, it just, I just, just rushed right on through and was done. Um, so I have, let's see, I've turned in, in an eight-day period, I wrote about 55 pages. And then uh, this week, I have written 30. And I've got probably another 30 to go. It's a Thursday night before Sunday uh, that yeah. I'm going to have, you know, try to have done. Uh, I'm about to go to MicroConf. Uh, and that's what, makes things a little bit more complicated because I'm speaking there. So I also have talk slides and a talk that I have to put together. <laughs> and at work, I have to make sure that everybody's got everything they need from me so they don't bother me <laughs> while I'm yeah. gone in Vegas. Um, so yeah, it's it's been a little bit of a madhouse. Um, I feel like all I do is type. Yeah. <laughs> so there we are. So how about you? Well, my laptop is still acting up. Uh, this is our second recording to tonight, and I'm really hoping nobody can hear the fan. It is still going full blast. Uh, we tried some stuff between recordings to fix it. That did not work. Uh, during our previous recording, I got the blue screen of death right in the middle, I guess, sort of the latter part of the recording. So uh, if it sounds kind of funky the last 10 to 15 minutes, yeah, that's, uh, that's because we had to restart. Um, everything. So yeah, it was, uh, it was, it's stressful. Um, I'm going to spend this weekend trying to get as much done on editing episodes as possible after I finish my schoolwork so that I can take my laptop to get it worked on next week and already have everything set up for at least two or three weeks edited wise. So it's just, it's there, it's scheduled to be published and, and ready to go. Since the weather's been nice, I've been out hiking a lot. Uh, actually, I've been going to the gym almost every day. And in really exciting news, you guys know that you know weight loss was one of my big goals for this year. It's middle of March when we're recording this, actually late March, and uh, I have lost 12 pounds since I started last month. Nice. Uh, I'm going to, I mean, I- I'm, I'm slimming up. I'm going to in- eventually need to get new clothes. But with all that I've had to spend on vehicles lately, like, you know, my car messing up and then getting my bike finally uh, fixed and the tire replaced. Oh, that was expensive. I'm going to be hitting up the thrift stores for clothes. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, speaking of thrift, I've got an interesting deal for IOTs. 
So this is a free Arduino Uno and some educational books. I mean, you still have to pay for shipping and handling, uh, and it's definitely uh, a marketing scheme to get your email address and send you adverts. Uh, but it is very likely a legitimate deal for a free Arduino in the books. Arduinos aren't expensive, but what really caught my attention on this are the books. They're really interesting. The first one is Arduino for Beginners. It's a project-based learning for people new to the maker world. Really cool. And the other is a 10-week projects for engineers. This is basically, once you've gotten through the beginner stuff, the more advanced book of Arduino projects. I think it's really cool, but I'm going to leave it up to you guys to decide if it's worth giving out your email address and possibly getting some spam emails and stuff like that. Uh, I would also suggest possibly creating a temporary email address until you get the ebooks, and then you can just shut that email address down, uh, especially if you own your own domain, like uh, Will and I own several domains between the two of us. Yeah. So, But I'll have a link to it in the show notes. They say they're only giving out so many, but come on, you guys know marketing and stuff. Who's talking to us this week? Well, we got a uh, comment by way of email from Diego Guerrero saying, I've been listening to your show for a couple of months now, and I'm learning a lot. Thank you. Thanks to your podcast, I've realized that being a developer, it's not only about the coding, but also about interacting with other people. I'm an introverted person, which makes the interacting part difficult for me. Also, things like long meetings or discussions drain my energy. I've been thinking where I see myself professionally in five years, and all the senior roles in my company seem to require good people skills, a lot of meetings, and less time coding. So my question is, should I just accept those parts of the job I don't like and make an effort to be good at them, even though I don't enjoy them? Is that going to be a limitation in my development as a professional? Are there different senior roles more focused on programming? Well, as the person here who's actually been a senior developer. Yeah, and introverted. Yeah. uh, On top of that, uh, there's several different uh, approaches that you can take. Uh, First of all, not all senior devs have to go into all the meetings. Um, You're going to have to have some just to understand what's going on, but it can be fairly limited. The more difficult code type environments, that's probably what's going to happen. They're going to keep you away from people. So that is one option. You just have to look for senior roles that fit that. Another option is to kind of start desensitizing yourself to all those meetings and all that kind of stuff so that you know when you get there, it's not as bad. You can also listen to our April 1st episode from this year where we actually discussed this very thing. Um, we did that whole episode and then we got your email like, what, the next week? <laughs> yeah, it, so. was, it was oddly... Um, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but it, it was funny because we did the episode and then got the email. And we're like, wow, we just we just addressed this. That's really cool. Yeah. So we would have read this comment on there probably. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we wanted to go ahead and get, get to it, though, because it, it did so closely relate. Now, as an extrovert, I don't have that exact problem. Um, now, I, I do know, like I have seen in my time in development... Uh, seniors and like where I work, we don't really have senior. It's um, sort of the mid and senior roles are, are blended into one role, uh, which is where I'm at. I'm more of a mid-level developer so far as like your, your junior mid senior, but I'm on the advanced side of that because it's called advanced. But uh, anyways, the other advanced developer is definitely a senior developer. Like he's been at this longer than Will has, loves what he does doesn't really go to a whole lot of meetings and stuff because he's like Will said, working on some harder things. And whereas with me, I'm interacting with business people a lot. 
it fits my personality more. So they put me into those kind of roles. Whereas with him, it doesn't. And so he isn't doing that as much. I still see him. He does a lot more one-on-one with people, which is a lot easier. Uh, whereas I can go into a room full of five, 10 people and be completely comfortable presenting to them. But uh, yeah, it, it like Will was saying, there are a lot of different senior roles. So you can find a place where you don't have to do that much. Now you are going to have to go to some meetings, like uh, especially in the the modern workspace, because there's so there's been this big push towards more open um, and involving the client a lot more in things. So yeah, there's going to be meetings, but you can find roles out there that that don't have them. So send us an email to neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com with your contact information because we've got a Complete Developer water bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own Complete Developer water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all of our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and uh, not Google Plus anymore because by the time this airs, they'll be gone. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr. Check us out each week on Facebook and YouTube Live, where we talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer a few listener questions, where you can join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. We all get stuck writing documentation, specifications, or even tutorials from time to time. In addition, developers are often required to serve as a backup to technical support personnel, And this may require writing lightweight documentation and knowledge base entries so that support can use them when clients call. Additionally, you may be required to document API endpoints for strategic partners, write documentation for other developers on your team, or even write postmortem documentation for a security breach or outage. It turns out that you can't really avoid having to do technical writing as a developer. While we'd love to think that all we do is write code, In many jobs, programming is not even the majority of the work. This is especially true for lead developers, development managers, and software architects. In some cases, you can provide a much higher value to your team by writing than you can by writing code. Uh, If you think of writing as a way to scale your development team, the value proposition becomes much clearer. I know I've seen this with the lead developers that I work with, they do a lot of learning and then creating trainings for their teams. Yeah. Uh, You do that or you, you do a lot of learning and then you write a little bit of code that makes it easier for your team to do stuff. And then you document the crap out of that. Mm -hmm. And so the rest of the team can lean on that stuff. And that's kind of what I do a lot of. I tend to get, to get pulled a little bit in both directions because I've got the technical writing. Uh, I've been asked to, help out with some of the standards and writing some of the documentation on kind of uh, like our logging system and a few other things that I've worked on. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. So the thing here is that writing is a discipline all of its own and it has its own rules. Good technical writing that is easy to follow is not as easy to write as it might seem from the outset. However, there are some tricks that can help you become a better technical writer. In this episode, we're going to discuss some of the strategies you can use to improve your writing. So the first one is an outline or mind map your ideas first. And I would say that those are, you know, give or take, they're mostly the same. Um, you know, like my uh, mind mapping tool will actually dump an outline out if you ask it to. Yeah. So 
the the end product is the same. The way you get to that end product is a little bit different between an outline and a mind map. Um, I've tried to do mind maps and I struggle with them because I'm so used to outlines. I've been doing them for so long. I work better in an outline format. Yeah. And like I know the mind map is good for moving things around. I I think better when it's in that outline format and I move it in chunks like that. It's it's weird the way my brain works. I know. Well, I think it's but. kind of um you know, because I've noticed like if it's like if I have a good idea what I want to write, the outline mm-hmm. works better for me. But if I don't, like if it's still ephemeral and kind of foggy, then the mind map is better. Because like just like if I don't know what the structure is like I don't have the remotest clue what the structure is going to be kicking it off with a mind map and then switching to an outline seems like that's the win for me that does not work for me at all I I, that would that would have the opposite effect I would never get to structure that way I have to impose a structure on it and then go oh you know this structure doesn't work let me adjust because from that point I am not creating structure I'm adjusting structure uh, that makes sense because I'll put the structure on there and it'll be too strong. Yeah. And then I'll get in my own way with it. I mean, you've seen like my personal task tracker, right? Like, yeah. I, I had tags in there for all kinds of crap. Like, I deleted like 50 <laughs> tags today because I just looked at it and I'm like, what is this? Like, I can't, I can't reason about any of this junk. I mean, it's like, great. I have all this information, but I've got so much structure that I can't actually use the tool. Yeah. And so that's uh, what I end up fighting with. And so if I do that, if I do the mind map first, that gets the ideas out and then I can do just enough structure and, and yeah, get I around it. You and I have the opposite problem where I would have no structure if I didn't impose it. Yeah. But basically it doesn't matter which of these approaches you use. You need to organize your thoughts before putting them on paper. You want to have a rough idea of what's going to be around a piece of text before you actually get to writing it. When I'm writing an outline for an episode, what I will do is I will start with the major points mm-hmm. and I will try to list out as many of those as I can think of, put them in the order that makes sense to me. And then I will go and go, all right, here's the things I want to talk about on each one of these. That's exactly what I do. Yeah. And then I'll dive in. The difference between what you and I do is you then go in order. I will jump around. Sometimes I'll be on point five B and an idea strikes me for point three E. And I'll jump up and I'll like, if you look at my outlines halfway through, it looks like this garbled mess. Yeah, I've seen that. (laughs) It's like, okay, I hope he gets this one sorted out. I just like, I'm just not going to look at it till it goes. Yeah, we actually have a folder that's like uh, unrecorded. That basically means, hey, it's being reviewed. And I don't, I try not to look at your stuff until it's in there. Whereas mine, I'll have like really, really hefty points at the beginning and then there'll be ones further down that are not filled in yet. Because yeah. my thing is, like, I'll, I'll outline it at a high level, walk away from it, and then come back and nuke it mm-hmm. and just go straight through. And so it, you kind of have to figure out your workflow on this, just like you do with coding. Um, but the point of um, knowing what's around the text, it's also really helpful if you've got those high-level outline points and you've got, got those anchored in, like, your Word doc. Because then when you have to refer to them elsewhere, you already have the anchors, and so you can, you can make links uh, for those kind of things. Or if you're like, let's say what I've been doing, right? You write a chapter in a book and I have been jumping around in the book, by the way. And so I can say, okay, in the previous chapter, we discussed blah, blah, blah. You know, and you might find that helpful in a later, you know, two chapters from now, there's going to be this other thing. And, and so if you have all that, it makes it a lot easier because you're not having to fix that later when you move the outline around. 
Also, make sure that your outline makes sense before you start writing it. You want there to be a logical flow when reading from one end of the document to the other. And this, again, this this goes back to differences between myself and Will, because I'll get the, the major points, but they may move around while I'm working on it. Yeah, I've seen that happen live. Yeah. <laughs> I've been reading it and watch stuff jump. Like as I'm reading it, because it's it's synced through Dropbox, and so Visual Studio Code a- automatically moves it, and it's like, yeah. what happened? Well, B just <laughs> still editing, <laughs> yeah. and like the whole point went somewhere else. Oh yeah, yeah. And there's been uh, once or twice I think you've pulled it off into another file, and then worked oh, yeah. a little bit, and then pulled it back, and that's jarring. So basically, <laughs> don't read other people's text live. It's just. <laughs> Man, could you imagine if we, uh, if instead of Dropbox, we were using like uh, Google? Oh yeah, Drive? I would need you, more go, scotch you, than I can afford. <laughs> oh yeah, so like the thing is, people should be able to scan the table of contents of your document or the outline view in Word or you know whatever, and get to the stuff they want to read. That's the that's the gist there. Next, you want to use your reader's vocabulary. Don't make up terms for things when people already have a term for it. Yeah, this is a pet peeve of mine. Like, resist the temptation to be pedantic unless it's actually required for the purposes of an explanation. Like, you know, or you're writing it, for a podcast. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, if you're trying to explain something to somebody that's not technical, like the difference between, you know, different versions of SATA cables, they probably don't care. <laughs> right. Like they need to know that the cable plugs into the thing that has the data. You got to remember here that people are reading your technical documentation to learn something or make a decision. They aren't referencing it for college papers. Right. This is not a peer-reviewed article. We're not talking about technical writing in the sense of writing a peer-reviewed article. We could have a whole another episode on how to write that. And we know that's going in the Kanban board now that you said that. Yes, I'm putting it in there now. <laughs> So you also need to make sure that you write for the reader's level of education and experience. So if you're writing a manual for other developers, you write like a developer. But if you're writing it for project managers, you probably don't want to get into the weeds on object-oriented programming or, you know, representational state transfer or, you know, cyclomatic complexity. You want to keep the terms where the people that are reading it can understand it. All documents are built for an audience and a purpose, and you want to hit those. Next, you want to include graphics. Graphics give people something to examine as a supplement to your writing. And this can help avoid small misunderstandings um, becoming really big ones. Graphics also help people that can't visualize what you're saying to understand you. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a certain percentage of the population that just can't do it. Like They, no. they can't visualize in their head. And so you, you got to put it on paper or they're never going to get it. The other nice thing about graphics is they can be reused in other contexts for different audiences with less editing than the text might require. Graphics can also make things clear that are difficult to express in text. They're a good way to get out of difficult writing situations. Now, I will tell you guys, uh, when we've done some things, um, I think of Boolean Algebra mainly because, one, I wrote that episode and I just took a test on it a few weeks ago in grad school. So, I did not have any audio to listen to for that segment of the class at all because you have to see that to understand it. 
there's several videos and a lot of, you know, like pages to read about it and exercises to do on it. But, you know, different formats, um, especially like graphical formats, if, if I hadn't seen it, I would not have passed that part of the test. Right. Like if, if I had just read about what it was or, uh, the different, like if they had described how to draw an and or an or gate, yeah, I'd never seen one, but then I go to the test and it's all right, draw out these. I wouldn't be able to pass that. Yeah. The other good thing that graphics will do is they will force you to tighten up the way that you're speaking about something because it clarifies things in a way that you, you can't get with just pure writing. So you'll make the graphic and now you can go back and actually write clearly because you've, you've thought about the process enough to put it in a graphical form. But the other thing that's happened is you can now refer to that graphic when you don't really have a good way to explain something and it takes the pressure right off. Next, make sure you format your text. Yes, uh, it should be really easy to navigate through the content of your document, either by scrolling or by using a table of contents. So the, the thing that happens is people that write documents think that people read them. <laughs> and I don't know where we got this idea. I'm sure, you know, they can read them, but just because you can do something doesn't mean that you will. Most people scan. I, I'm in this small group at church and... Um, the only person that's not some form of programmer or engineer is the guy that runs it. The rest, there's two programmers and one engineer in the group. <laughs> and um, we were sitting there talking. The engineer was talking about, um, he's like, yeah, we're just, we're talking about school and stuff. He's like, yeah, man. He's like, you know, I never really got into reading until I was in my, my mid to late twenties. It's like, because in school, it's like, if I wanted to pass an English test, I just read the chapter titles. Yeah. So you can get all the information you needed from the chapter titles and maybe the first and last paragraph. And then you, you go and go to Amazon and look at the soundtrack and see what that, I mean, like, <laughs> you don't, you don't read, right? Like people, people legitimately don't. So like mm -hmm. you're building this so you can answer a question quickly. So understand yeah. that people are going to scan and accommodate that. So that means that you do stuff like, using headings. So you use your H1 through H6 in HTML. You use your heading one in Word, those kind of things. Uh, that also has a nice side benefit of letting automated tools kind of help you out. So like if somebody's got a screen reader, you know, they, they need that information anyway. So mm -hmm. this just makes it easier for people to access the information regardless of how they want to access it. I mean, some people just sequentially read the whole thing one time and they go on with life. I know a guy that has done that with the uh, RFC for SMTP and can remember it all. And great. Um, that's not my jam, but you know, if that's what you want to do, but the rest of us are going to scan it because we don't want to fall asleep at our desk. Yeah. I, I, I know a, a surgeon with an eidetic memory like that, that he can just remember every single thing he's ever read. Yeah. And then there's the rest of us with idiotic memories, which, uh, <laughs> you know, means we scan. Uh, uh, break things down into reasonably small chunks, uh, basically a page or two at most. The goal is to make it so that someone can answer a question quickly. This is why you want those headings, because they need to be able to find things. Like, one of the worst things that I see is when I'm trying to find an answer to a question in documentation, and there's no headings. And I just have to like, I, I hope that skimming the paragraph, like the first sentence of the paragraphs will 
help me locate it. Yeah, and this kind of thing is also, by the way, why you want like figures and graphs and that kind of stuff in the text is because people will remember those and they know mm-hmm. roughly where they are when they're scrolling yeah. quickly. So that helps as well. Now, another thing you should be doing is you should be laying stuff out based on tasks for the user, not groupings for the developer. I, I see developers do this all the time. Um, don't ever build documentation that shows things screen by screen, you know, table by table. Uh, for people that are not developers. So you go, okay, here's this complicated screen and here's what every button on it does. Here's the next complicated screen and here's what every button on it does. You know, like follow a workflow and make it task oriented. So the person is like, I need to do this. How do I do this? And they go, well, you can look at this screen and you can see that this button does that. So you can click that. And then, oh, this other screen pops up. So now you got to look that one up, right? Don't write docs like that. That's awful. No, what you want to do is show how to accomplish tasks or how a task would be accomplished. If you do things in that task-based manner, people can get an answer to their question and get back to work. They're not looking for this, you know, big developer thing. They're looking for even developers that are going into it are going in looking for, I need to do this specific thing. How do I do this specific thing? Yeah, and I also want to point out that it's not just that, hey, they can get done and then get back to work. They can get done and not show up at your desk. (laughs) Yeah. What's really bad is if they show up at your desk and you don't work there anymore. Yeah. (laughs) You also want to make your headings task-oriented so that when people are scanning, they can scan for those tasks. Right. A, A great way to think about this is like listing out all the things that like your page does, and then how to do this, how to do that, how to do that, how to do that. Right. It just makes it easier to find. Yeah. Um, And speaking of things that you probably haven't thought of that makes stuff easier, um, avoid making things personal in tone. So basically the deal here is that the extra words are unnecessary for technical docs. Uh, So instead of saying next, you want to click on the OK button, just say click the OK button. Yeah. This You're not writing a novel. You're... Uh, you're not updating your LinkedIn profile as the previous episode talked about. Um, you are writing technical specs, technical documentation that people are using as a line by line. Do this, do this, do this. They know the next thing you say is next. They don't need you to, it doesn't need to be uh, flowery and I don't want to say readable, but it doesn't know. need to be polite. It doesn't right. need it's to It's imperative. Yeah. yeah. And the extra content is actually a little bit worse than just wasted text because the other thing it does is it confuses people, uh, especially if English isn't their first language because it makes the sentences more complex. So, like, anytime you learn a foreign language, you know, you learn really simple sentences first, and then after a while you're getting to more complex stuff that's, you know, got more objects and you've got more, you know, you got gerunds and you got all kinds of crap in there that you remember hearing about in English, but you don't remember what they are. You don't want to inflict that on your foreign staff members, right? You want them to be able to answer a question and go on with life. Or if your your docs have to be translated. Yeah. It's very brief, direct, imperative statements are very easy to translate, yeah. whereas the, the flowery language may not be as much so. Which is another reason to avoid stuff like idioms, right? Yeah. That's just you know, important. Um, another thing, too, is also avoid directly mentioning individuals' names in documentation. Um, I can't count how many times I've worked places and it's like, oh, if you have this problem, call Dave. Well, where's Dave? Oh, he left like 15 years ago. 
Why is his name still in the document? Like it's like you know, Dave. Dave is retired and lives in Costa Rica. <laughs> or, or you could do like, um, don't don't do this. But uh, so about six months into where I'm working now, we had a project that we just had to get finished, and so we were doing a little bit of a death march, and me and the UI developer got into this back and forth on who could make the funniest console log. And so, you know, I, I was going 2001 Space Odyssey. You know, I'm sorry, Dave. I just can't do that. Uh, and uh, then we hired a guy named Dave. And uh, I, I've completely forgot about it. It was like a year later. And he comes to me and he's like, you you worked on, on that app, over, um, didn't you? And I was like, yeah. He's like, why does everybody keep asking me about it? I'm like, oh, that's my fault, man. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, it happens. Um, so the, the point, though, is like, instead of saying, send an email to Bill, the CFO, say, send an email to the CFO. That way, when the CFO changes, you don't have to change your documents. Yeah, if you mention departments instead of roles, like accounting instead of CFO, you also insulate yourself from a lot of policy changes as well. Right. So like accounting decides they change their procedures. If my docs just go, Hey, get this to accounting instead of, you know, put, you know, send an email with this subject line and da, 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 then it's their problem. It's not mine. I don't have to go back and touch the thing. I mean, this is sort of like writing code to be generic. It's that same kind of thought process. So next you want to make sure you're explicit with text on UI elements. Uh, this is one I see people do all the time. So when you describe how to do something using a user interface, you've got to be really clear about which element you're referring to. So instead of saying click the button, you say click the save button and you put save in quotes. That's, that's very important. Um, it also makes it easier to update your documentation when someone changes the text of the UI element because you can find documents referring to it by text. I mean, who doesn't love control or command F? Yeah, or when you're um, translating. Oh, That's a whole other thing that'll, that'll kick in there. The other thing that this does is it makes it less likely that somebody will misinterpret your directions. If you explicitly say which element to use, people will not click on the wrong one as often. And you may not think this is a big deal, but interfaces are not necessarily static. People change stuff all the time. They add buttons. They do all that. So if you say click the button and now there's two buttons, your user just got a 50% chance of being wrong and showing up at your desk. So, well, that, you know, that's the idea. What's interesting is like when you go from one button to, oh, well, we we need, we have one next button. Then you're like, oh, well, they need to be able to save here so they can step away and come back. So we need to add a save button. Oh, well, we need a cancel button, too, in case they decide to cancel it at this point. So, so I just like got a three or four more buttons. And is this is this a place where you'd say, I, I can't do that save? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. That was just sitting there. I just no. I'm a bad person. I know. So next, you need to consider accompanying documentation with something like a cheat sheet. When it's appropriate. If you're building documentation, especially for end users, it's useful to include some very short reference material targeted for specific people. Yeah, because this this sort of thing intimidates people a lot less than a big honking manual. If you go, hey, here's a sheet that you can laminate and put on your desk that covers like 85% of the crap you're going to run into during the day. I mean, that's perfect. 
because then they won't have to touch your manual. So they don't see your bad grammar and the ways that you laid stuff out poorly. They just see this, the, the little cheat sheet. It's great. Oh, well, have you seen my, um, my Ubuntu notebook? Yeah. So it's, it's got like very detailed information about the command line in Ubuntu, but on the cover of it, like, you know, where you slide the, the cover of a notebook in there, yeah. it's like a three ring binder thing. On the cover of it, I have a cheat sheet with just like the, it's, you know, very basic, most of the things that you're going to use. Because 90% of the time, if I can't remember something, I, I go grab that and I look at the front of it and that's all I need. But yep. if I, if I need deeper information, I can dig deeper. Like from a from a developer standpoint, that is a good thing. Um, yeah, but it's good for everybody. And you know, part of the deal is there is a chunk of the population who will not look in a manual. They will come yep. to your desk mm-hmm. every time. And so like got to get around that. They're also really good for onboarding new users by giving them just enough to get started. So going back to my Ubuntu example, when I started, I started with that cheat sheet, you know, working on the command line. This gets the new user focused on the most important and most critical items first. And the cheat sheet can also be targeted for specific job roles while the manual covers everything. The next thing you should always do when writing is let it mellow between the writing phase and the editing phase. Now, I've been doing a lot of this with writing the book. And the thing is, is you don't see grammar and logic errors in your writing if it's fresh in your memory. You remember what you meant to say, not what you actually said. Yeah, I mean, I remember this from school and a lot of times I was really bad. You remember those all-nighters I pulled writing papers? Oh, yeah. And then like you would get up in the morning. Yeah, almost. You'd get up in the morning. Papers I should have written a week ago. And I couldn't because I was writing a paper that I should have written a week before that. But anyways, um, so there was like some original paper, like in junior high, (laughs) (laughs) it was like a week late and you never caught up. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) No, it was always the first couple of weeks of the semester. They they had all this stuff planned and you never get that first paper done in time and it puts everything off. But that's just me in college. But uh, no, I would, it would be due in the afternoon and I'd stay up all night writing it. And then you would get up from like having slept the whole night and I'd be like, hey, can you read this? <laughs> because I knew that I would not see any mistakes. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's always exactly how you want to start your day, too, is your roommate like dropping a paper, on, like a psych paper on you. And it's like, oh, man. <laughs> and it was going to be like your 2 a.m. thoughts, too. Like, that was so painful. So, yeah, you don't want to do that. <laughs> Uh, the other thing that tends to happen is you tend to change your content flow. Like mm-hmm. after you've gotten away from stuff, then you look at it and you're like, okay, this paragraph really belongs in this whole other section up here. And yeah. so it's not necessarily a whole lot of editing. It's just moving. Yeah. This is why I really like the the outline format is because I can move things around. A lot of times when I'm writing show notes uh, lately, I have stopped putting the the major points in numbers. Like I, I don't have the numbers on them until I'm almost finalized. I think about that every single time as I'm almost done. Yeah. Because it, it like that, that is constant. I'm constantly changing the numbers. And, and there've been a few times where both of us have like, like, we'll be like, all right, we're going to talk about these 10 points and there's only nine because we skipped number eight. Yeah. Well, we started at zero. Yeah. There you go. It's an off by one error. <laughs> it's, it's actually, it's, it's tradition in our country. <laughs> so, um, if you can't wait, you know, because this document, you just got this you know, requirement dropped on your desk, you had to write the doc and it has to go out the door, then you have to get somebody else to edit. 
you know, developers can't test their own code and writers can't proofread their own stuff when they just wrote it. No, that's, that's very true. I mean, documentation, specifications, and all of that are first class project outputs and they need that level of care. Yeah, they really do. I mean, it's at least as important as everything else because if the users have good docs, they're not hitting your support lines. And if the support lines aren't getting hit, then the developers are not getting hit. The developers aren't getting hit. They can actually make the software better instead of being interrupted every five minutes. Sounds like somebody's got experience with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like my whole career. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So next, consider user personas in your writing. You need some demographic information on the different types of consumers of the documentation that you're writing. This can be everything from a rough idea of their employment and social background to their education level. Basically, you want to make sure that your documentation is targeted towards the people who are likely to read it. Yeah, I mean, this is a blind spot because developers especially will think that everybody's a developer. and. And that just does not work. I mean, this, if you do this, you can read back over content to make sure that it's understood in the way that you intend by your readers. I mean, we have phrases that we use that people are not going to get or they're going to misunderstand it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of stuff like in object oriented development, for instance, that, you know, doesn't really fit elsewhere. Well, like coming into the industry uh, just uh, four or five years ago, uh, I think I wrote, I don't know if it was a blog post or what, um, I think it was a blog post, but I wrote about how I used to listen to podcasts like .NET Rocks and not understand half what they were saying. Yeah. And it slowly, like, I, I was learning during this time, but I was also listening to these more advanced things, and over time... I started to pick it up and now I can have these really deep conversations with like the, the other advanced developer where I work about things that, you know, he knows inside and out and has been doing for years and years and years. And I understand enough to be able to have a conversation and learn from that. If your organization doesn't currently use user personas, you may need to make them up on your own. This doesn't have to be a formal thing. But you want to avoid the situation where you use vocabulary that's too complex for people that can't handle it or too simple for those that can. Uh, That's the other thing, too. Like when you get a doc that is way below your level, it's insulting. It can be really annoying. Yeah. Yeah. The idea is that they can read it as if it were written by someone at or near their own level and avoid having an emotional reaction to it. Yeah, because you don't want emotions. Um, in reading technical docs, unless it's joy. And really, you probably don't want that either as a developer because it's just kind (laughs) of weird. Um, So speaking of things that cause great joy, uh, make sure and make time-sensitive references obvious. So like when you're expressing why something is done in a particular way, you need to reference those reasons if they might go away or if they're changed, right? Like you don't, you don't reference physics stuff this way. Like stuff falls down, not according to the physics act of 1972, but because gravity goes that way. Um, whereas if it's a legal thing, you kind of need to make sure that you express why that happened. Yeah. For example, if you're building an email application, instead of saying, Due to spam prevention laws, you should say, due to section X of the CAN-SPAM Act, blah, blah, blah. 
anytime you say at the present time, you should probably put the current year in parentheses just so someone doesn't assume the document is newer than it actually is. A great example of this is our episode last week where we were talking about the contest we're having on Patreon that ends today, uh, the day this episode comes out. And I said specifically when reading that, the date that it ended Right. And that's a really, really good example of that, right? Because if you if you or I write a document, you know, we're probably not going to touch it again. And somebody's going to pick it up five years from now and go, oh, this is still accurate. And like, let's say that you have privacy stuff in there, right? And you've got mm-hmm. some rules and they look at it and they go, okay, it's, it looks pretty good. But if they don't see a mention of GDPR in there and they're under that, it, it's better for them to explicitly see what this uh, what is being applied to it versus, you know, just, okay, it's privacy laws because otherwise they get in violation of something really bad. Now, if regulatory constraints like privacy laws are critically important to a document, list the constraints on the document somewhere easily accessible within the document. Yeah. So, like, if you have to come back and fix a bunch of documentation because some new law came out a year ago and you forgot about it, you'll be able to actually find the documents that matter if you've got one of those sections. Because you just do a control F for the name of the law, and if it's not in the document, guess what? You get to fix it. And you get to read that other really boring law while you're doing that. This can also allow more astute readers to ask smarter questions in new circumstances. For instance, if your document only covers U.S. laws and your company's branched to Denmark, People reading your documents may realize that these aren't intended for them. Right. And the Danes have got actual privacy legislation. Um, yeah. They, yeah, they they do a lot of things better over there. There's stuff I don't like, but there's a lot of stuff that it's like, look, they're on point and they are protecting their citizens. And so if somebody that's Danish is reading your document, they'll look at it and go, hey, this this isn't right. This doesn't cover all of our stuff. We need to make an alternate document for us and make sure that everything's covered. Instead of getting burned by finding out that stuff isn't handled, uh, either in the software or in the docs or in processes, now they know and they can react accordingly. Next, read your documentation out loud. This is something we did. I worked at Transcender, uh, which Mm -hmm. we made the uh, practice test for Microsoft tests. You know, the developers would buy and they would practice to get through the various exams. And this was one of our editing steps. So we had, you know, you had to go through and you had an editor that would read everything silently and make sure that it all fit together and all that stuff. And then you would read it out loud. And so you actually sat with another person in the room and alternated one person reading and one person listening to see if it made sense. I've had several professors that really could have benefited from doing this. You've had a podcast partner that could have benefited from doing this. <laughs> I was trying to be nice, bro. <laughs> I don't understand why you even try on that. Um, cause like this is like a, this is a sore point with my writing style. <laughs> like you're not the only one that has this problem, right? Like I know this is an issue. Um, your writing may look good when you write it out, but when people read it in the voice in their head, doesn't sound right. So you got to do stuff like watch out for homonyms and near homonyms uh, in close proximity. So they, they're, there, or they're, they're, there, um, and she saw and seesaw close together. It, in text, it sounds kind of weird, whereas written, it doesn't. And so you've got to watch for that because people, 
read it in their head. Watch out also for subjunctive, if I were you, as it's confusing, especially to ESL, English as a second language. Um, yeah, or people that don't really read a lot um, yeah. will also have trouble with this. Um, the concept can usually be expressed more simply, but the thing with subjunctive is that it sounds wrong if, you know, even if it's used correctly. So, like, if I were you, uh, that doesn't, you know, because you have I were instead of I am. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you have those kind of grammatical things and people look at it and they shake their head and then they read it again. And you don't want that in technical docs. You want them to get in, get out. That's it. I guess because I, I read a lot of um, literature and novels that is used a lot in those because it it is complex grammatical structures that they like to put in those things. It's very expressive. And in your technical documents, you don't really want expressive language. Yeah. I mean, it, it really does a lot of damage, especially if you have people using the stuff that just don't read a lot. This will also catch a lot of grammar errors or awkward wordings that may need to be touched up. Now, awkward wordings, that is, uh, is Will's strong suit. And he, he has said several times, I do, I translate as I'm reading. And if you saw uh, the, the outline as we're going through it, like just this particular outline, I've noticed four times that he or I have actually made edits to it while we're reading. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's just a thing, like, because I'm <laughs> writing it and I don't, I, I don't read so much with a voice in my head because I, I read really fast. Yeah. And so, but I can remember when I read slower and I did and I would kind of. So let me, let me ask you it. something because this is what I do. I don't always read the words. Like it's, I, I my brain doesn't process the words. It's I a shape. Yeah, I pro well, not the shape. I process the image. So whatever it's describing, I'm seeing it. So it's like it's like playing, especially when I'm reading a novel or something. I um, Terry Goodkind is great with this. When I was reading his stuff, like I didn't read the words so much as I saw what was going on. Yeah, I don't. I don't really do a lot of that. But I will read the words and not sound them out. You know, right? Like yeah. I get the shape, and, and I think that makes it where I miss stuff. Yeah, a lot of people hear words in their head as they're reading, uh, and <laughs> you don't want that voice to get tongue-tied. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know of another way to put that. <laughs> no, that's, that's really good. That is, that is really good. Uh, well said. So, the last point is use internal references. So, within your documents, you should also give the user an easy way to jump from the current section to the one that is being referenced. Now, this is why headers and subheaders and so forth are very helpful. They make it easy to add these as you get close to finishing documentation. HTML anchor tags are also really good for this sort of thing. Like we were talking about before, people tend to skim. And um, like I, I was saying, the, the, the engineer friend of mine, you know, he's, he passed all of his English classes and never read a book. Because all I had to look at was the headers. Oh, yeah. The information he needed. And, you know, I've even seen this stuff with, like, you know, speed reading. Where, like, I don't know if you've ever tried this, but, like, read, you know, not a novel, right? Because you'll miss too much. But a uh, technical document, you know, like, you've got a, let's say you've got a width on the page that's 100%. If you read the middle 70%, you'll still get the entire concept. And you don't, like, go over the edge. And, like, that speeds your reading up. And people do all kinds of crap to avoid reading stuff at length and 
you know, one of the good things with internal references is, hey, if they see that link and it's like, oh, hey, this is the thing I'm going to, they click that and they get the thing and they get out. So um, in my senior yearbook, I've got three or four people, uh, the, the people I sat around in my English class that all wrote, don't skim because yeah. I read fast. I am a fast reader so and I will read, I'll read the whole thing. I won't skim and I'll still get done before everyone else. Yeah. I remember being in elementary school and we would have, you remember those huge thick reading books? With Ricky Ticky Tavi in the back yeah. of the fourth grade reader. <laughs> oh yeah. I read yeah. that thing like eight times. I wanted oh, to go yeah. to India. <laughs> yes. Yes. So what I would do is like, we would get this assignment. It would be like, one, maybe two pages to read, I'd be done and everyone else was on the first or second paragraph. So yep. I just flipped to the back of the book and read one of the longer stories. Then when I got to high school, I, the biggest thing I remember was uh, 1984. Yep. I just, we, we were assigned the first two chapters uh, over the weekend, Friday to Monday. I read the entire book. I just like, I started reading it. I'm like, this is good. This is really good. And I wasn't like the, the teacher, I said, I read the whole thing and she was like, you skimmed. And I'm like, ask me about it. And so she, she asked me the questions that were going to be on the, the exam. I knew all of them. And she's like, all right, you are not allowed to answer any questions in class. <laughs> yeah. Because it's like, you know how the, they are. They're like, well, what do you think this is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen next? And it's like, I already knew. <laughs> yeah. They really hate it when you do that too. Yeah, they do. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I read the, uh, the first four books of, um, a song of ice and fire, fire uh -huh. and ice. You know, the Game of Thrones yeah. books. I read the first four books in two weeks. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and those are some thick books. But, you know, the thing is, is most normal people don't read technical documents like that. Most speed readers, not, not even speed readers, most people that read fast, like I don't read technical documents as fast as I read a novel. Yeah, you really can't. No. And, and that... You know, that kind of brings up the whole point. I mean, the, the point of a technical document is, again, just like get them in there, get them what they have to have, and then they leave. Um, so it's the difference between Costco and a gas station. So like if your document is really any length, like very long at all, you got to have a table of contents. When a reader is using an electronic form of your document, they can quickly navigate. It's, I, I love Absolutely love the way that um, Wikipedia is set up. And then there's some other technical documents uh, that I've been to where it's got that table of contents right there at the beginning. And I can yep. just go and I can click on it and it takes me to the place in the document that I want to go to. So wonderful. I know. I remember the first time I used HTML. I thought that was the coolest feature <laughs> of the whole thing. Was yeah, I could I just it. jump around in like mosaic and I'm like, oh yeah, I could click this thing and go to the next thing. That's awesome. That, um, that is and I really still feel that way. Um, I've, I've had Wikipedia deep dives, dude. Like I got to reading something and I remember like, you know, looking up and it's like midnight on a Friday and I'm reading about the, uh, the Kievan Rus and how they like stopped uh, Genghis Khan from taking over. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't even know how I got here. This is fantastic. Now, when you combine a table of contents with proper headings and sections, it really reduces the amount of effort that you spend keeping that table of contents up to date. Because as you add sections, it updates your table of contents. Or in Word, you have to refresh, but even so, yeah, still, like, it's easy. It gives you what to put there. Right. Like you don't, you, it's like a right click and then a left click and you're done. Yeah. Um, and that's, 
that's really, really substantially helpful for keeping stuff up to date. So like all this stuff really fits in with a lot of concepts we learn in coding for keeping things consistent and reasonable. Um, it's just for writing. So guys, technical writing of various sorts is one of the things that you will be doing as a developer. However, it doesn't have to be an awful experience. If you plan ahead using a few simple rules, you'll write better documentation than 90% of the developers out there. Doing this well can make it easier to get people to listen to your ideas, reduce the number of interruptions you get every day for questions, and generally make your stuff seem to just work. It's an underappreciated skill for developers and can change the quality of your career. That pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? So a lot of people really, really hate writing docs. And a lot of people really hate uh, doing things like audit trails, right? Like there's certain tasks that we just don't enjoy. And one thing I would recommend to everybody is when you find a task like that, Instead of trying to avoid it, try to lean into it. Be the person that writes the technical docs. Be the person that comes up with the way the audit trails work and makes sure that everything works. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for this. The first is, is that it just will make you more well-rounded, right? Like if you're doing the stuff nobody else wants to do, uh, that's extremely valuable for your team. It also means that other people won't interrupt you because they don't want any part of that. And it also builds your skills. And your ability to write well is extremely valuable skill. Your ability to understand how audit trails actually are supposed to work and make sure that they work. That is tremendously valuable. All the stuff that you think of as complete crap that you hate as a junior and mid-level developer, that's the stuff that makes you the most valuable as a senior developer. Doesn't mean you're going to be necessarily doing it all the time as a senior developer. It just gets you where you have that headspace. And so I'm just going to tell you, lean into the pain. Like when you see stuff like this, and you're like, oh man, I don't want to do that. That's the thing you need to go straight at as part of your job. And that's all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.